Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. And this is part two of a conversation with marriage and family therapist Stephanie Wynn, who has gone from being a progressive leftist uh, therapist in her orientation to <clears throat> coming back to a more traditional um, psychotherapeutic approach that recognizes that the that a lot of what we are calling care and affirmation for so-called transgender people is is anti-therapeutic and is not helping them. We cl- we closed off the first part of this, the first episode, in talking. I, I said that I see what we call gender dysphoria or gender identity as um, as not a standalone thing. I don't believe that it exists. There's no such thing as a person who is healthy in every way, except they just happen to be transgender. I believe what we call transgender is a symptom of an underlying already known psychological problem. And Affirmation Generation is the documentary that Stephanie is speaking about. She's the associate producer, and it talks about it talks to people who've been through the transgender mill and come out the other side. Uh, Stephanie, uh, why don't you riff on that? I know you've got some thoughts on the idea of gender dysphoria as a symptom. Yeah, Josh. So our documentary addresses three myths, and I think in your closing of our last episode, you really beautifully touched on two of them. So those two myths that you touched on are the myth of being born in the wrong body, um, which, as you pointed out, is logically impossible. I would say personally that it's a it's a religious belief that cannot be confirmed, um, so it's not useful to any scientific endeavor. And then the one and only myth, uh, the myth that there is one cause of gender dysphoria, which is the born in the wrong body, and that there's one treatment, which is medicalization and trying to change genders or change sexes. The third myth is the suicide myth, and we can get into that in a bit if you want. But I want to tackle this sort of one and only myth because it's a big part of what we try to address in the documentary, and I think you pointed out the contradiction very beautifully. Now, the one exception that I would say, because I agree with you, I, I do think that gender dysphoria is a symptom, not a root issue in and of itself, except if you look at classically before gender dysphoria became a social contagion, when it was mostly prevalent in young boys rather than teenage girls and when most of those boys turned out to be gay in that case i would say right that the only that there's no um pathology necessarily if what you're really looking at is simply a gender atypical boy for whom prior to puberty prior to discovering that he's homosexuality he's just a boy who's more like the girls a boy that is feminine right and that's going to be yes. affected by cultural context as well and we can say the same for girls who are tomboyish many of whom are likely to be- yes. grow up lesbian not all i would say i was a pretty gender non-conforming girl and i grew up to be straight but you know for gender non-conforming quote-unquote children or um leonard Sachs uses uses a more neutral term that i like better, which is gender atypical, uh, because non, non-conformity, yes, that's a good is, term. When you say non-conformity, it's like non-conformity is cool. It's like, let's not ascribe any value <laughs> judgment. Let's not say that this is conformist or non-conformist. Let's not associate this with rebellion. It's just more, what's your nature? And is your nature typical for your sex or not typical for your sex? Right? Yeah. That's that's perfect. I'm going to adopt mm-hmm. that now. That's better than gender nonconforming. So like Thank gender you. atypical children, you know, feminine boys, masculine girls, many of them will turn up to be gay or lesbian. And so they they would typically experience gender dysphoria, but that also has to do with the cultural context. If, you know, we're talking we're talking about kids growing up in the 70s maybe when we're talking about this stuff, maybe the 60s, right? So 
what 70, 70s and 80s. Yeah, you're talking about my generation. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, the amount of distress associated with being a boy who says he's a girl is going to vary based on whether the family is accepting of gender atypical behavior in children or if there's, you know, like an a macho alpha male dad who says my son's gonna play baseball and shoot guns and I don't accept this you know like then if there's a if there's a cultural mismatch between the temperament of the child and the family and society that they grow up in then of course that's going to intensify the distress associated with gender dysphoria and maybe um, cause them to double down on the insistence that no I'm really this way because what well, there's no option for me otherwise right I'm I, I don't want to play with guns I don't want to play with GI Joes right so so I would say in cases where you have a gender atypical child um, you know, before gender dysphoria became a social contagion, that yes, there's nothing necessarily inherently pathological with a child who's just gender atypical and is likely to grow up to be gay. And as long as they have, you know, a healthy social environment and they can grapple with their budding sexuality, they can grow up to be okay without necessarily having um, any major clinically significant issues. But um, I would say yes, in today's environment, the way that we're thinking about gender dysphoria, it is the catch-all because all of these young people are self-diagnosing based on what they're seeing on the internet. And, and the, the concept of my dysphoria, I'm putting that in quotes, you'll hear that a lot, like mm -hmm. young people referring to anything that distresses them as quote unquote, my dysphoria. And it could have to do with getting a bad grade or getting rejected by a friend or romantic interest. It could have to do with anything, but the, there's a chain reaction that goes off in their brain because of the combination of thoughts, feelings, and actions that they repeated thousands of times in, in small ways throughout the day yes. that tells them that everything traces back to their gender and then they put it on their body. It is like a form of OCD for many of these kids. And I think that's one of the many underlying issues that's not being properly diagnosed, as well as, like you were saying at the end of our last episode, eating disorders, body dysmorphia, personality disorders, complex PTSD. We also know that people who are adopted or in foster care are highly overrepresented yes. in this population, which really makes a case for the points you were mentioning about attachment as well. Yes. Can I, let me insert something quickly. I won't, I won't dwell on it too long, but, um, this, uh, um, w one thing that I am just consistently distressed about in in this larger cultural conversation and it was it, it was not addressed very it was addressed um somewhat it um i know the focus of the documentary was was to talk uh to the detransitioners um so no criticism there although i i will say that one thing i did notice that i wish i had seen more of and um i hope to see more of in, in our larger conversation, there, there's a big elephant in the room here, a really, really big one. Neither you or I have brought it up yet directly. I'm going to bring it up directly. What binds together most of the people who end up in the gender clinics and who end up in front of a camera for this documentary? Child abuse. Child abuse and neglect. Trauma. Um, and sometimes I don't like... Sometimes I don't like using the word trauma because, and I don't think people intend it to, but it does function as a way of avoiding saying parental child abuse. The kid had trauma in their past. That erases the actor. There was an actor who traumatized that child. And that actor 
is usually or was usually a combination of mommy, daddy, step-parent, caregiver. Um, if we want to get to root issues, we all are going to have to get down to this, and we're going to have to have a very raw conversation about it sometime in the future. I just wanted to get that in there. Please go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And we do go into many of the root causes, but we don't specifically highlight child abuse in the personal histories of many of our um, participants. You know, for sure. um, Michelle and Laura both talked about being bullied as children um, and the role that that played yep. for them. But uh, but yeah, we don't learn a whole lot in this film about the role that child abuse played for everyone. And of course, it makes sense. You know, I recently testified here in Oregon against House Bill, I believe it was 2458, um, which again, there's such messy language in the so-called conversion therapy ban that they were trying to expand from minors to adults. And, um, and I testified next to Camille Kiefel, who's a detransitioner, who is suing the therapists who affirmed her for getting a quote-unquote non-binary double mastectomy to affirm her so-called non-binary gender identity. And, um, you know, she's very transparent about how in, in her story, um, she had projected onto her breasts the trauma of her best friend being sexually assaulted when she was at a very vulnerable age. It didn't even happen directly to her, but children are sensitive. And when you're, yeah. when you're a, I don't know how old she was when you're like a 12 year old girl and your best friend is sexually assaulted, it can be absolutely terrifying to be going through puberty yes. at that same time and, and feel out of control that that my body and these these body parts that are objectified and sexualized by men could put me at risk, right? So she projected her yes. distress onto her body parts. And that was part of my testimony as well that, you know, and so that was where we both aligned, right? That if you yeah. have sexual trauma that's associated or that in your mind you associate with um, sexualized body parts, of course that can drive the desire to be rid of those body parts. Why wouldn't anyone want to explore that? Of course. Um, you were um, in the process of tackling the three myths. Please continue. Right. So, so the born in the wrong body myth, the one and only myth, right, that gender dysphoria has one cause and, and one solution, and the other being the suicide myth. Did you want to go there? Oh, yeah. Let's go anywhere you want to go. Absolutely. So, um, and, and the documentary does a better job of explaining this than I can. Um, the, the myth that based off of one study that essentially assessed people for suicidal ideation and found that I think it was about 41% of people who identified as trans had experienced suicidal ideation. Well, that was conflated with behavior. Um, yes. And, and that was also conflated, you know, the their suicidality was attributed to their being trans and the suicidality was, it was like the suicidality was attributed was, okay, let me just try to explain this all at once. The suicidality was conflated with suicidal behavior and it was attributed to being trans and furthermore to being discriminated against for being trans rather than, um, the truth, if, if you if you if you peel back all the layers, you see that uh, the suicidality again is attributable to those root causes and comorbidities, and I think it's exacerbated by a cultural climate in which young vulnerable people are being told that they will kill themselves or that they are in increased risk of suicide or heaven forbid that they should threaten suicide to back their parents or medical professionals into a corner. 
I mean, talk about yes. cluster B behavior writ large in the culture. Yeah, that, that, that is, to me, that is text, absolutely clinical textbook, borderline personality, emotional manipulation. Uh, the suicide threats. Um, I'm very familiar with them personally. Many people listening to this are familiar with them personally. There was a portion in, in um, Affirmation Generation where, well, uh, uh, the therapist Sasha Ayad, did I pronounce I her last Ayad, name correctly? Yeah. Okay. Um, she, she, of course, is featured throughout, and, and she said something that, it, that uh, I want to highlight here. The suicide rate, and when I say suicide, let me go back a little bit here. You just very, uh, well, you disambiguated two terms, and I want to underline that for listeners. Suicidal ideation is not the same as actively suicidal and a risk. So I will use myself as an example. From time to time, not that often anymore, but from time to time, the thought of killing myself flits across my conscious mind. Yes, it does. So that is technically suicidal ideation. I don't ruminate and stay in it any longer. It's not something that will ruin a whole day for me. And I haven't tried it to kill myself since I was 13 years old. So I do experience suicidal ideation from time to time. But it would be a gross inaccuracy to look at a person like me and call me a suicidal person. And that 40, do you agree? Is yes, that fair? Absolutely. And as a therapist, I mean, I recognize that my viewpoint is skewed because I'm seeing people who are seeking mental health counseling. And that's not necessarily a representative sample of the broader population. But, you know, having spent the past 10 years full time counseling people, mostly adults and some adolescents, uh, so many people have the type of passive suicidal ideation that you were talking about from time to time, right? And as therapists, yeah. it's part <laughs> of our job to learn how to talk to people about that in ways that aren't going to shut them down and that they're not going to freak out and think that, you know, they're going to be hospitalized, right? We have to create an environment in which our patients feel safe to tell us and where we can ask the nuanced questions and maintain rapport to find out if there is actually any imminent risk and if so what level of intervention is required so it bothers me to no end to see people speaking so inaccurately about how suicidal ideation works and conflating it with behavior because there's suicidal ideation and then there's many degrees before it gets into behavior. And then with behavior, there are different degrees of risk for how successful that attempt might be. And we we owe it to everyone to take these issues seriously and speak about them accurately and appropriately. But my kind of big um, interest that I really wanna talk to people about when it comes to the suicide myth is the long-term suicide risk factors versus protective factors because all of this pushing people to affirm using this manipulative abuse behavior of threatening suicide um, and saying that you're going to have blood on your hands and all of that is obscuring the reality which is actually very much the opposite because if you take the time to really study how suicide works you understand that while Yes, suicide can happen impulsively. And by the way, I just listened to your episode with Jake Wiskirchen before we recorded this today. And I appreciated the discussion there where you talked about how 
for example, alcohol can increase impulsivity. And when people yes. own guns, you know, those suicide attempts are going to be more lethal, more successful than suicide by poisoning. You had an accurate conversation about the nuances of suicidal ideation, behavior, gestures, attempts, risk factors, protective factors, right? So, you know, when you actually look at the risk factors and protective factors, what is happening right now with the sex denying harm, which again is you know, in Orwellian speak, gender affirming care is actually setting people up for more risk factors that they're going to have to live with lifelong. It's one thing to have a moment of suicidal impulsive thinking during a young, vulnerable, impressionable time. And adults and caregivers can surround that person and protect them. That's why I really don't appreciate when people say that your kid's going to kill it themselves. It's like, well, any parent that deserves to maintain custody of their kid is going to say, not on my watch. No, my kid isn't going to kill themselves. If I have to stay up all night and take the door off of their room, if I have to, you know, pull my kid out of school, move to a different state, like I will maintain a watch on my child and do whatever it takes to make sure that that does not happen. Kids are safe in homes with their parents if their parents care because parents aren't going to let that happen in the vast majority of cases. Now, I'm not saying there aren't ways that it sometimes happens, unfortunately, and that can be tragic, but... The point is that it's one thing to say that there's a moment of impulsivity in a young person's life and they're highly distressed, that they're at high risk, but we also have to think about people's lifetime suicide risk and what we're doing to young people by taking away their future fertility, inducing chronic pain and disabilities, reducing their chance of finding a romantic partner, reducing or eliminating their chance of having children that they can love and care for and be responsible for. We are taking away the protective factors and increasing the risk factors associated with suicide. And that is, you you don't have to make up new studies to find this out. You don't have to specifically even study gender affirming care, so-called, to find this out, because all you have to do is put two and two together by looking at the existing data we have on suicide risk factors and protective factors and on what these so-called sex reassignment procedures do to people, and you will see very clearly why the studies we do have show a 19 times higher risk of suicide for people post-transition. I'm I'm glad you you brought that up because I'm going to pull out just a couple of pieces from uh, Affirmation Generation that I made notes on last night. Number one, Sasha Ayad, the therapist, um, she said, it's not a quote, this is a close paraphrase. Um, The suicide rate, meaning completed suicides, right? Not ideation, not, not, not speech assertions, completed suicides. Even within this population, this vulnerable population is markedly lower than people think it is. The risk is much lower than people emotionally perceive the risk to be. Number two, the studies we do have, we don't have a lot of them, but uh, I think the the one that people are treating as the gold standard is the Swedish study that you just referenced, showed that, and this is long-term, you can't measure this at a three-month follow-up juncture, you can't measure it at six months, one year, or two years. This is a longer-term follow-up. The Swedish study found that people who had undergone sex reassignment surgery over the long term demonstrated a suicide rate 19 times higher than the background general population. So the very thing, the very thing that we are promising children and and adults will help them feel helpful and um, healthy and contented and integrated rather than fragmented will do exactly the opposite. It will increase their fragmentation. It is 
in, in my view, it is actually encouraging and colluding with the deepening and concretizing of their trauma-based disorders, and it is setting them up to be so unhappy that they are almost 20 times more likely to actually kill themselves because of the treatment that we say we're giving them. It is perverse, and it makes me very angry. Absolutely, and anecdotally, I have observed and others I speak with have observed that how people in the in the world of being post-trans, whether you call yourself a detransitioner or whatever, you know, sometimes I use survivors of gender malpractice because that's what I think it is. And I really don't care if someone calls themselves a detransitioner. I know that term is highly contested. But, you know, anyone in the kind of post-trans category, um, basically the more surgical intervention they've had, the worse they're doing. Like the sisters yes. are doing the best, you know, and then the people who are just on hormones short term, but didn't have any surgeries are doing a little, you know, a little worse than them. And then the people who, yeah, it's just, there's, yeah, there are certain things you can't come back from. And it's really hard to envision a life where there's such massive loss of functioning and sensation and, and such a high rate of disability and chronic pain. It's, it's so hard to imagine that, that the, mind, the mind tries to deny it. I can't deny it anymore, but there, there was, I can understand how, how people build a defense against it and say that isn't yeah. true. Uh, it can't be true. It can't be true. It can't be true that I did this to my children, right? But, yeah. sorry. No, um, I, I mean, the emotion that you're feeling, that's that's what we all need to be feeling right now because there are so many people who are going to need help coming back from this. Obviously, like, I, I picture, like, a target, and at the very center, the people we need to be really rallying around to care for are the people who have been personally, physically harmed by this. Absolutely. But there are rings around them. And the parents who really thought they were doing the right thing are the next level of the people who are going to be hurting the worst. And then I would say one degree out from there, the teachers, the doctors, and therapists who participated. And that's why I continue to say to my colleagues who hate me that I will forgive you at any time when you're ready to come back because you're going to have a pretty intense process of remorse and grief and anguish. There's going to come a time when you realize that you thought you were doing the right thing and you were absolutely doing the wrong thing and that people have been permanently harmed as a result of what you have done. And if you still have a conscience, which I think most therapists do, I just think there's a deep level of cognitive dissonance and indoctrination. I think a lot of people are gonna have so much guilt to reckon with. Like I felt guilty enough just for my role in social affirmation of my patients and you know, yeah. for even <clears throat> like any degree of support of surgical intervention um, and for the therapists who thought they did the right thing, I mean, there are so many waves of therapists coming just with the waves of detransitioners. For example, there's a new Twitter account. I was actually her very first follower of a therapist in Canada who approached Twitter saying, um, I'm a therapist. My world has been rocked by working with detransitioners and I no longer believe the, the trans ideology whatsoever. And I'm here to connect with other people. Like, I'm so grateful that the detransitioners that therapists have worked with took a chance on working with her because there are so many detransitioners yeah. who have who have had their trust in us 
so damaged that they're not going to go to a therapist. They're not even going to get the medical care that they need because they hate doctors so much. Um, and, and some detransition, I mean, they have murderous rage toward the therapist who affirmed them. So I'm grateful for whenever yes. a detransitioner takes a chance on trusting a therapist. And, you know, the fact that detransitioners don't trust therapists readily is part of why more therapists haven't peaked on this, because if they, if we were all, if all of us therapists were hearing from detransitioners, like we'd be peaking a lot faster, but it's still happening. Well, the fact that affirmation generation, we've got, uh, you know, I will do everything I can to promote this um, because that that is a piece of work that is that is going to be filling a, a big part of the of of what needs to be filled in that conversational role. Um, and and as you know, all of us who speak about these things in our own ways um, are trying to open up the conversation or push the Overton window back towards sanity every time somebody is courageous and truthful and plain spoken it does have knock-on effects on other people it does open doors for other people i have had to i've had to train myself i am by nature impatient distrustful and emotionally reactive this is it is my work every single day that i get up monitoring myself and disciplining myself because my my inclinations are to be emotionally dysregulated. And I find this topic personally extraordinarily upsetting. But I do know from experience that <clears throat> this is the part where impatience, if you're an impatient person, I would say this to you. When you speak out, when you make a movie like Affirmation Generation, when, when you have a conversation like this one, you have to accept that you may get no immediate gratification from the people in the room around you or the people who are, are watching you speak or watching your movie. You may get nothing, you may get nothing but pushback. But, and I know this now because I've seen it, trust this please, you did plant seeds in people's heads in that room and in that movie theater and with your statements. And someday, you will not know when, often. You will not be there for this. But I've seen it happen enough. This will allow someone else to speak. And you will have, that, that seed will blossom into something for some people. You are having an effect even if you don't get the immediate feedback. Thank you. And, and that, goes, th th that, that goes for everybody who is feeling... Um, hopeless or despairing or wondering if if this is ever going to stop and and honestly I'm one of those people a lot of the time a lot of the time I feel a lot of despair I'm not sanguine I hope but I don't expect high on suicide I want to say something else um if you are a person who is has a lot of suicidal ideation, or if you have a child who is expressing suicidal ideation, and I'm leaving this very, very general, I, I can't get into the degrees of severity. At 13 years old, 
I tried to kill myself twice by cutting my wrists. That's Those are the only times in my life where I have ever actively tried to kill myself. And quite frankly, I don't know if I was actively trying to kill myself or if I, I, I suspected that I knew that what I was doing was dramatic enough that something was going to happen. I was going to make something happen. I wanted something to happen to pull me out of the nightmare home that I was living in, right? I'm just, exp I'm just explaining how a th one 13-year-old's thought process was going. Um, after that, I have <laughs> I've had a, uh, a very difficult life because of my upbringing and because of the choices I made as an adult as a result of my upbringing. My life got significantly better about seven years ago when I had an enlightenment and realized the root of these psychological problems in my family. Since I was 13 years old, I have never tried to kill myself again. And there has only been one other time in my life where my suicidal ideation was strong enough that I considered talking to a professional, and even then I did not need to do so. Even if these thoughts flit across your mind, it's perfectly possible for people to live a productive and meaningful life without fearing that every single minute. I appreciate it. I don't know what it looks like from a therapist's point of view, but that's what it looks like from a well, patient's I really point appreciate of view. you saying that, Josh, because this is such a heavy conversation. And, you know, one of the many problems I've encountered trying to do this work and speak about these issues publicly is that, um, see, in, in ordinary social situations, when you're not on the internet, we're, we're code switching, right? You behave one way in one cultural context, another with a different group. And yeah. that's just normal. It's just, um, you know, being social and being sensitive to your context. On the internet, um, you're not code switching so much. It's like you have one message that's for everyone. And something I run into problems with is that I would... I would ideally like to speak about these experiences one way if I'm speaking to and with detransitioners and another way if I'm speaking to and with professionals and concerned citizens. Why? Because I have a message for the professionals and concerned citizens that is very serious, that they need to understand the depth of anguish that detransitioners are in and the severity of the risk. But I don't want to drive that message home to detransitioners. They don't need me to drive that home. In fact, that yes. makes them hate me if I talk about it the wrong way. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like fuck yes. you, lady. Like, like yeah. you know. So, and and there's been times when I run into conflicts with them on the internet because I'm like, actually, this message is about you, but it's not for you. Like, you need to protect your mental health by not reading the everything that's about detransitioners because I need to have a talk with the other adults in the room who are supposed to be professional about the hell that you have been put through, but you don't need to hear that talk. You need to go for a walk and take a bath and call your friend and play a game. Like, detransition. Amen. So, like, so you can't code switch, right? And like, I all, you know, yeah. I'm thinking about some of the more serious things I've said in this conversation with you that are meant for you and that are meant for a professional audience. And they're not exactly the words I would choose if I knew that I was speaking to the ears of de a detransitioner. And there probably will be a few detransitioners listening to this episode, and they're probably going to get triggered by it. So I appreciate, Josh, that you brought it back to hope and resilience. I know that's hard for you because of something. It's hard, but it, but it's also real because if it, if it weren't real, I would be dead. And I want to, 
I, I really, I really and would I be. I want to end this on a positive note, especially for any detransitioners who hope who happen to be listening. If you haven't stopped listening already or decided that you hate me for how you know how negative of, of spin I put on the situation that you're in, like I think that one you know part of the silver lining of what we collectively will get from going through this incredibly dark time is we are going to learn new things about human resilience and creativity. Like how, I mean, it's like what Viktor Frankl wrote, Man's Search for Meaning, based on some of the most horrific experiences that a human being could ever go through. And I think that um, the radical self-acceptance that some detransitioners are learning and the um, ways that they're finding to make meaning and find joy and find beauty in life and find ways to creatively express themselves, even when they have had things taken away from them that the rest of us can hardly fathom. Like, we don't know what it's like to live with constant pain and numbness in your genitals. None of us who, who haven't been through this know what that feels like. And there are people who are going to really grapple with that hell every day and they are going to find new levels of meaning through their struggle to find meaning through their suffering and so i want to like i do want to highlight that silver lining that um i think detransitioners are like you said incredibly courageous and i know i i anger them when i say that because they're like we didn't have a choice <laughs> and it's like well maybe you did maybe you felt like you didn't have a choice because it's in your nature to be honest but as a therapist i see people double down and double down and double down on their own delusions on burying their head in the sand and ignoring their problems and so when i see detransitioners like you said josh having the courage to admit they made a mistake and face the situation that they're in I do see that as brave, even if they don't see that as a choice. So I think we're learning about resilience. We're learning about courage to face the truth. We're learning about, you know, and Lisa Marciano describes it in the documentary as shadow people, like people who hold the shadow of that which we collectively don't want to deal with. Um, and and I hope to see tremendous creative gifts to the world from the D-trans community that come out of the suffering that they've gone through. And I, I wish for them all meaningful relationships too. That's the one thing. And I understand many detransitioners are coping with immense loneliness and grief and fear that they're never going to find anyone to love them or that they're never going to be able to have children if that's something that they want. And those struggles are real. But I, I also know that, you know, love can be born in the darkest of places. And I hope that they are all able to find that love in their lives somehow. You are, um, you are a person in the world who is doing work that is going to help them find it, and I thank you for it. I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for the work that you're doing with your individual patients. I thank you especially for being a professional who is willing to suffer the consequences that you are suffering for saying what you're doing because you are following your moral conscience and we need more people like you. And <clears throat> I want to say to everybody listening, um, um, please watch Affirmation Generation. Uh, Stephanie, where's the best place people can find this? Go to affirmationgenerationmovie.com. You can follow Affirmation Generation on Twitter at 2022Affirmation. You can follow Affirmation Generation on Instagram at Affirmation Generation. And where can they find you online? Where do you write, speak, tweet, etc.? So my podcast is called You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. It's on all listening platforms and on YouTube. 
You can follow me on Twitter at some therapist. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at some underscore therapist. You can follow me on Instagram at some therapist. I do have a Facebook page, but I hardly ever touch it. Um, I have a private discord server for people who reach out to me who have verifiable, trustworthy identities. Um, and uh, my website is sometherapist.com. Fantastic. Stephanie Wynn, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you again soon. Hi, Josh. I just wanted to thank you for your podcast. I discovered your podcast because you were a guest on the show Trigonometry. And hearing your show is kind of like being in a foreign country and you're standing in the middle of a crowded square and you're screaming in English, you're completely lost and nobody understands you. And then all of a sudden um, someone approaches you and addresses you in perfect English. And that's kind of what it was like to hear your show. I'm a marketing consultant uh, for physicians, specifically plastic surgeons, um, and then for psychiatrists. For so long, for the past few years at least, I felt strongly that looking around, it doesn't, doesn't anybody recognize that we're all being <laughs> commandeered by cluster B personalities? Um, in working with these physicians and these surgeons, I sort of started to specialize in these disorders. So many of the men I work with are narcissistic, but I work with them very successfully because I just have studied and studied and studied it as ad nauseum, uh, what to say, how to handle it. Um, I stay ahead of the game. And experiencing what we've experienced the past few years has just made me, it has resonated with me so strongly and has it's so synonymous and so similar to what I experience with my clients. And I just keep looking around for someone to say it. And you're the first person I found that has. And so I've just been binge, binging on your um, program. And I really appreciate it. I, I want you to continue and I hope you will. And I love your sense of humor too. It's, it's hilarious. So thank you and have a wonderful day. 